0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Please be seated. (coughs) Well, this morning we continue um, our trek through the Gospel of John, and I'm going to pray one more time uh, and ask for God's blessing. Father, we are so dependent on your Spirit this morning, more than we even know or can imagine. Father, we do pray that you would pour out the Spirit liberally this morning. Father, we pray that you would use these words of sacred Scripture uh, to honor your great name and to transform us. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Not too long ago, the massive Barna Research Group did a huge poll trying to figure out how self-identified born-again Christians live their lives. And here's some of the results of that poll. They're not very encouraging. The likelihood of married adults getting divorced is identical among born-again Christians and those who are not born-again. In addition, a minority of born-again adults, 44%, and even smaller proportion of born-again teenagers, 9%, are certain of the existence of absolute truth. In addition, among born-again Christians, again, this is self-identified as born-again, 10% believe that people are reincarnated after death. 29% 29% claim that it is possible to communicate with the dead, and 50% contend that a person can earn salvation based upon good works. Finally, George Barner writes Substantial numbers of born again Christians believe that activities such as abortion, homosexuality, sexual activity outside of marriage, cohabitation, drunkenness, and viewing pornography are morally acceptable. This data indicates that many, many people who think they're born again are not actually born again, at least according to the Gospel of John, which raises the question, what in the world does it mean to be born again? And this brings us to a very famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, a religious leader, in John chapter 3. And in this particular story, we learn about the importance of being born again. Well, how important is this particular doctrine or subject? Jesus says that all those who are not born again will perish. So this topic is really, really, really eternally important. So four points this morning from this passage. First, the necessity of the new birth. Second, the cause of the new birth. Then the result of the new birth. And then finally, The mystery of the new birth. So, first, the necessity of the new birth. By the way, I'm going to use several terms synonymously this morning. Regeneration, the second birth, and the new birth, and being born again are all referring to the same event. So first is the necessity of the new birth. Why is it absolutely necessary to be born again? Because we can't enter the kingdom of God apart from The new birth. Listen to John 1, 1 to 3. Jesus says, or I'm sorry, John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus says the same thing twice. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus Tells Nicodemus, not once, but twice, it's impossible to see or enter the kingdom of God apart from first being born again. Now, when Jesus talks about being born again, he's not talking about physical birth. He is talking about spiritual birth. All of us are born into this world dead spiritually, and we must be made alive or given spiritual birth. In the Old Testament, this is described as God ripping out our heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh. This is a significant resurrection miracle. It's a heart transplant that only God the Spirit can perform. If we are not alive spiritually, we are dead spiritually. If we are dead spiritually, we cannot see the kingdom. If we can't see the kingdom, we can't enter the kingdom. If we can't enter the kingdom, we can't be saved. Jesus is very, very plainly telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you are not born again, you cannot see King Jesus, therefore you cannot enter his kingdom, therefore you cannot be saved. Now, other texts of the Bible corroborate this evidence that we can't see the kingdom apart from new birth. What are some of those passages? How about Ephesians 2, 1 and 2? The Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that before conversion, we were dead spiritually, not physically, but dead spiritually. Therefore, we could not see the kingdom of God. How about 2 Corinthians 4.4? Paul writes, in their case, that is the case of all unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing... The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says that all of us before conversion are blinded spiritually to the things of God. One more text, Romans 3.10. Paul quotes the Old Testament here and says some very unflattering things about all of those who are outside of Christ. As it is written, none is righteous No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Because all of us come into this world spiritually dead and spiritually blind, we cannot see God's kingdom. We cannot become Christians apart from God acting First, and that's because we're spiritually dead. When I was in seminary many, many years ago, my wife and I decided to drive up to the Northeast because we were in St. Louis to visit Princeton University and Seminary. Now, why visit Princeton Seminary? Because for 150 years, from roughly uh, 1750 till 1900, Princeton Seminary was the premier. Evangelical Seminary in the World. It trained thousands of men and women for ministry. As a result, some very, very impressive people taught there. Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield. These guys were giants in the evangelical world of theology for 150 years. Now, Princeton Seminary is right next to Princeton Graveyard. And I wanted to go visit the graves of these stalwarts, of evangelical theology. And so I drug my wife to this graveyard (laughs) to to visit all these dead guys. But the grave I wanted to see the most was the grave of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered by many to be the greatest philosopher and theologian America has ever produced. And so I wanted to go and see his grave. He uh, died in 1758 in Princeton, and so he's buried there in this Princeton uh, graveyard. By the way, I walk up to the person working there. I said, "Uh, can you tell me where the grave of Jonathan Edwards is? And he said, Jonathan who? I thought, Jonathan who? The most important philosopher and theologian in America's history is buried here. He didn't know where he was. So I had to find Edwards' grave. I finally found his grave, and I had a moment where I thought, I am in the presence of greatness. So after a while, I worked up my courage And I begin to have a conversation with Jonathan Edwards. I said, Jonathan, what was it like to get fired by your own church and become a missionary to the Native Americans? Jonathan, what was it like to write all those sermons? What was it like to experience revival in the 1740s? But I realized after a while, he was not responding to me. Why was he not responding to me? Because he's dead. Dead people make lame conversation partners. Before conversion, all of us, spiritually speaking, are just like Jonathan Edwards. We are dead. I was talking to bones and dirt. And they would not respond. They cannot respond. Here's the point. Asking an unregenerate person to respond to the gospel is like asking a dead person to respond to the gospel. It's like asking a totally deaf woman to, woman, to listen to you sing a song. Or it's like asking a blind man to read you a book. Or it's like asking your friend eight stories below to flap their arms and fly up to you. It's impossible. Before conversion, we cannot and we will not respond to the gospel because we are spiritually dead. Unless, unless, unless God performs the miracle of regeneration. Sure, We can comprehend the facts of the gospel before conversion. We can understand that Jesus was this guy who lived and died and rose from the grave. We can be nice, moral, decent people. But we are not going to respond savingly to the gospel because we can't. We're dead. Let me ask you a question. Is it more biblical to say, I believed and then I was born again? Or to say, I was born again, and then I believed. Let's let Jesus answer this question. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, he didn't stutter. He wanted to make sure Nicodemus was clear on this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration comes before conversion. It must. Okay, did I get that new, the new birth is necessary for faith? But what causes the new birth? That brings us to the second point. So, first is the necessity of the new birth, and second is the cause of the new birth. Who or what causes the new birth? Answer, the Holy Spirit. John 3, 4-7. to Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Not a dumb question. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Seriously, Jesus? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now imagine hearing these words for the first time. You're thinking, Jesus, this is a little weird. (laughs) You expect me to go back in my mother's womb and then come out again? It's kind of weird and gross. But of course, Jesus is talking about spiritual birth, not physical birth. He's talking about spiritual realities. Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus, I'm talking about spiritual birth. You must be born of water and the spirit to see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born? That word born is used eight times in verses three to eight, and every time that word is in the passive voice. We must remember that when we are born, we are entirely Passive in the process. We do nothing. If you don't believe me, ask your mother. She did all the pushing. Have you thanked her recently? In a similar sense, when we are born again, we are totally passive in the process. Theologians call this monergism. God alone acts to regenerate us. Now, what does it mean to be born of water and the spirit? This is not a reference to water baptism. This is a quote from Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, going way back in the Old Testament. We read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel connects cleansing water with the new birth. He's describing the spiritual purification that sinners experience when the Holy Spirit regenerates them. The point of John 3, 4 to 7 is simply this. It is God the Spirit who causes us to be born again which I find incredibly encouraging as a father and a very, very incompetent evangelist. Why is this so encouraging? Because my effectiveness in evangelism and parenting does not depend on how winsome I am, how nice I am, how many apologetic arguments I know. My effectiveness in evangelism and parenting depends entirely on God. Now, yes, we should try our hardest to be as loving and winsome and bold and courageous as possible. We are responsible. But ultimately, as an evangelist, as a parent, I am totally dependent on the mercy of God. And so I am constantly praying. Father, send your spirit to regenerate my boys. Father, send your spirit to regenerate the people that I'm trying to evangelize. And by the way, when you are continually praying for the same person to come to faith in Christ, that often causes you to be much bolder with that person. But when all said and done, if someone comes to faith in Christ, it's not because Of Dave's winsomeness or cleverness. It's because of God's grace. And this should drive us to our knees as parents and evangelists in prayer. And when folks are converted, God gets all the glory. In addition, if God is the one who causes the new birth, there is Zero grounds whatsoever for any kind of boasting. We don't become Christians because we have this keen spiritual insight. We're dead spiritually. We don't become Christians because we're really nice, moral people. We don't become Christians because we can understand complex doctrines. We become Christians... Because God, in His grace and mercy, performed a resurrection miracle in our hearts. Heart surgery. Divine and supernatural heart surgery. We sometimes think, man, Joe or Susie, they're such nice people. I bet they'd be really, really open to the gospel or spiritual things. Maybe, (laughs) maybe not. Niceness is irrelevant because before conversion, all nice people are dead spiritually, which means that our prayers are critical and reliance upon God's spirit is critical. Again, this means that we have nothing to boast in. God deserves all the glory, honor, and praise when any soul is converted, which led the reformers to cry out, solo deo gloria. To God alone belongs the glory when sinners are saved. Okay, Dave, I'm starting to understand the new birth. But what actually happens when someone is born again? This brings us to the third point. So first the necessity of the new birth, second, the cause of the new birth, and third, the results of the new birth. What are the results of being born again? The answer is, very simply, visible change. Look with me at John 3.8. Jesus says, describing the new birth, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. November seventeenth, 2015, Spokane experienced its worst windstorm in the history of Spokane, windstorms. Over 200,000 people were without power for days. A few people actually died in this windstorm. Uh, There were gusts of up to 77 miles per hour. Uh, The windstorm caused millions and millions of dollars in damage and all kinds of inconvenience, making this one of Spokane's most expensive natural disasters of all time. I'm sure we all saw trees that had fallen through roofs, trees that had fallen on garages, trees that had fallen on fences, fences that had blown over. I I knew someone who was actually driving down Hastings Road in the middle of a windstorm And this person was at a red light, stopped, and a telephone pole came down on their car. And they had to get out of their car and just leave it there and walk away. And the car was there for several days because no one wanted to touch it because there were wires everywhere. I remember a couple days after the storm walking through the campus of Whitworth University, and I could not believe the devastation. Over 200 trees fell down on Whitworth's campus. All those beautiful pine trees gone forever. Now, I guarantee you that none of you saw any of that wind, did you? But all of us saw the results of the wind. We saw all the carnage and all the devastation. We don't often see when someone is born again. But if that happens, I guarantee you, you will see the fruit or the results of that person being born again. You'll see visible change. Why? When someone is born again, several amazing things happen simultaneously. God rips out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. God writes his laws on our hearts. God fills us with his spirit, God unites us to Jesus Christ by faith, and Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin in us. If all those things have happened simultaneously, then I guarantee you, you will live differently. If not, you have not been born again. It's impossible for all these things to happen in your life and for you to experience no change whatsoever. Listen to how the Bible describes born-again people. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning why the power of sin has been broken in us this does not mean sinless perfection but it does mean as christians you and i should no longer be enslaved to the power of sin no one born of god makes a practice of sinning for god's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of god isn't that good news god has given you power to say no to sin if you're born again 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. That's good news. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What's the point of these verses? When someone is born again, some pretty amazing things happen, and so you will see change. It's inevitable. Not all at once, sometimes slowly, but if you're born again, there will be the fruit of change. Chuck Colson was known as a hardworking, ambitious, and ruthless politician in Washington, D.C. in the 1960s. In 1969, his hard work paid off, and he was hired by President Richard Nixon to be on his presidential council. Slate magazine writer David Plotz described Nixon as the evil genius of an evil administration. According to President Nixon, Colson was quote willing to be ruthless and getting things done. Richard Nixon's chief of staff described Chuck Colson as the president's hit man. Describing his own ambition to succeed, Colson quipped, "I would walk over my own grandmother if necessary." Chuck Colson was not a very nice person. (laughs) He was full of ruthless and corrupt ambition. On March 1st, 1974, his ruthless tactics caught up with him, and he was indicted for conspiring to cover up the Watergate scandal. His life was essentially ruined. And in that brokenness, Chuck Colson visited one of his very wealthy friends who had just become a Christian. And this friend said to him, Chuck, I want to I read you an excerpt from a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And so he read Chuck Colson, the, the chapter on pride, which you should all read, by the way. It's incredibly convicting. And when Chuck Colson's friend read that chapter on pride, Chuck Colson was undone. He experienced incredible conviction of sin. Then his friend told him about grace and forgiveness and transformation through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson left that conversation, went out into his car, and he wept for an hour. Now, Chuck Colson was not a weeping kind of guy. He was a tough, hardened Marine who did not cry very easily. But he was under such conviction of sin... He didn't know what to do, so he wept, and then he cried out to God for forgiveness and grace and strength. Later in his life, he said, my life after I was born again was dramatically different than my life before I was born again. But there's consequences for sin, so Chuck went to prison, and he served a term in prison, and when he got out of prison, he turned the world upside down. As many of you know, he formed Prison Fellowship, an organization that is now in over 100 countries around the world with 50,000 volunteers. This organization is designed to bring the gospel to people in prison and their families. He's been involved in several organizations and constantly, he's written over 30 books, many bestsellers. He's, an, he's been an incredibly fruitful and effective agent in God's kingdom. His life was dramatically altered and changed as a result of being born again. And you can read about his life in his biography titled Born Again. It's a fantastic picture of what happens when someone is truly and authentically converted. When regeneration happens, our lives change. Parents, don't be naive with your children. Just because your kids are well behaved, nice, obedient children does not mean they're born again. Just because your kids can recite the gospel does not mean they're born again. I could recite the gospel very well when I was a kid, but I was not born again. I was living for myself and my own pleasures and desires. Parents, you need to look for the evidence of the new birth. A changed life. We are not saved by our changed life, but if God has actually saved us, if he has caused us to be born again, there will be substantial change. God changes our desires. He changes our hearts. And he gives us a desire for spiritual things, a hunger for the word of God, a hunger to be with God's people, a desire to obey God's commands. A nascent fear of God. All those things are evidence that the new birth has actually happened. It doesn't matter if little Johnny or Susie walked down the aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer. Hopefully they'll do that at some point. But I did that many times before I was born again. What ultimately matters is, is there evidence in your life or your child's life of the new birth? Jesus says, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can't see the new birth happening, but you can see the effects of the new birth in the form of a changed life. If you have been born again, be encouraged. God's at work and God promises to finish what he started. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about this. If there is genuine regeneration in a person's life, he or she will believe that Jesus is the Christ and will refrain from a life pattern of continual sin and will love his or her brother and sister and will overcome the temptations of the world and will be kept safe from ultimate harm by the evil one. If you're regenerate, God's at work, and he promises to keep working in you until you reach the promised land, as we sang about this morning. Well, this all raises the question, Dave, how does one become a Christian? What do we have to do? If God causes the new birth, what am I supposed to do? It leads us to the last point. The necessity of the new birth, the cause of the new birth, the result of the new birth, and finally... The mystery of the new birth. John 3, 9 to 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, that you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In verse 15, Jesus says that whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, may have eternal life. Well, what do we believe? Verses 14 and 15 are a very, very interesting reference to a story from Numbers 15 in the Old Testament. In Numbers 15, the Israelites will not stop complaining. They complained about everything for decades. And so God finally sends discipline. He sends poisonous snakes to bite his own people. Many of them die. But then God has mercy and God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to construct a bronze snake. Put it up on a pole And everyone who looks at the snake, simply looks at the snake, will be healed and saved. The point is simply this. All they had to do in Numbers 15 was look at that bronze serpent. Simply look. Just the act of looking was enough to save them. All we have to do is simply look to Jesus. We simply look at him hanging there on the cross for us. And that look of faith is all that's required. By simply looking at Jesus with the eyes of faith, you will be forgiven. God will transform you. God will adopt you. God will reconcile you to himself, and God will preserve you until you get to heaven. All we have to do is look. We are not required to clean up our lives first, become good, noble, honorable people, read our Bibles and pray. None of those things save us. We are saved by simply looking to Jesus. And that look saves us. But Dave, earlier you said, we can't look until we're born again. And that's the very mystery of the new birth. The Bible is very, very clear that no one can believe unless God regenerates their hearts. Yet all of us who ever lived must believe. We are responsible to believe. And the Bible is very clear that anyone who believes will be saved. Anyone who looks on Jesus with the eyes of faith will be saved. And if you've made that look, you can thank God because he enabled you to make that look. No one should wonder, have I been born again? Should I believe? Can I believe? (laughs) No. You must believe. God commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe. In the Bible. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both clearly taught. Everyone here this morning must make a decision to look to Jesus. You are required to do that by the resurrected and reigning king. And if you've done that, your response should be a response of gratitude. Holy Spirit, thank you for changing my heart and allowing me to believe Only God can regenerate but all of us everywhere must repent and believe. Both those things are taught in scripture and you and I must embrace that divine mystery. And if we look to Jesus, our lives will be forever transformed and changed. Let's pray together. Father, we Thank you that you have seen fit to send your Holy Spirit to cause so many of us to be born again, leading to faith. Lord, thank you for performing the miracle of regeneration in our hearts. Father, I pray that everyone here this morning would repent of their sins and look to Jesus and be saved. Father, help us to be a people that prays often for our children and our non-Christian friends, and help us to also be a people who is bold and courageous and winsome and loving in evangelism. Lord, we long to see more and more and more people look to Jesus, join this church, and be forever transformed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pause for a moment of silent reflection, and I want you to ask God how he wants you to respond to these truths found in John 3. Let's pause for a moment.